This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, welcome back to the program. Top of the hour, Andy Strickland. We'll talk about the St. Louis Blues. Lance Lasowski on the Buffalo Sabres coming up at the bottom of hour two. Meantime, we're a little heavy with Elliot, so I want to get right to our next guest. He is Craig Morgan, uh, who covers the Arizona Coyotes. He is on the beat uh, very much for Phoenix Sports, and he joins me now. Craig, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Jeff? Uh, I'm doing well. So the very latest, and there are sort of bigger picture issues here, but these are... These are two smaller pieces of that bigger picture. Um, Zach Cassian uh, placed on waivers for purpose of a buyout, uh, and Patrick Nemeth as well. This isn't any surprise to you at all, Craig, I'm guessing? No. Um, we, when uh, A couple things here. Uh, I, I think Zach Cassian, first off, he didn't really add anything to the roster. Um, I, there may have been a bit of a culture issue there. Uh, Patrick Nemeth was okay as a maybe an extra defenseman, but the price wasn't right. I think they had hoped that they'd be able to flip both of those guys for draft assets and just didn't play out that way. So it didn't make sense. And then when you look at what they're trying to do this offseason, they are trying to take a step forward. So this will allow them to get younger and add some pieces on a very tight budget. So you think they're going to be adding then? Because, I mean, we're sort of used to the uh, the, the, the strip-down process here of the Arizona Coyotes. I'm going to get to some of the roster players here in a second, but do you think that this is a team that's that's looking to add right now? Well, I'd, be, I'd caution how you define that. Um, they're not going to dive into the big-name free agents. I'm not even sure that that's available this year in what is widely considered a weak free agent class. But I do think they'll be right. looking to add some value guys in age and, and price, whether it's someone that they can, you know, a trade like a Nick Bugstad where they can get a draft asset again, or if it's younger guys can actually grow with this group. Can they find a, a guy like Yusuf Alamaki who they really liked last season and could be a part of this team yeah. for the future? That's the type of additions that I think they're going to try to make this summer as they try and take well, what Bill Armstrong would term a step forward. Now, when the uh, when the, when the Tempe project went south um, on the Arizona Coyotes, you know we had, you know every time that I would check in, it's always you know the timeline is going to culminate with the building of the new rink. And now that, and now that that's off the table, how does that change any sort of timeline that the Arizona Coyotes had? Because it all made sense to me. It's like okay, I understand you're going to run it lean. Uh, I understand that it's it's smaller arena. It's not a perfect scenario. Um, from a fan experience point of view, you know, outside of however the, the PA or the Board of Governors feel about it, I, I want to go see a game at Mullet Arena. Uh, looks like a lot of fun. I'm just a fan, though. Um, so what, what happens now to this timeline now that Tempe's no longer, you know, no longer a thing for the Arizona Coyotes? Yeah, I'm not sure there's an answer for that now, Jeff. I don't think that Hockey Ops is changing its timeline in any way. But there's so much uncertainty around the arena now that they don't know if it's going to dovetail with moving into a new arena or moving to another city, as a lot of people are talking about at this point. It's it's really difficult to know. Um, they're so early in the process of trying to find a new site uh, to build an arena, and I reported on that yesterday. But we're, we're, we're just too early in the process for me to say how those things are going to pair. How did um, Commissioner Gary Bettman's comments about, you know, the clock is ticking, uh, how was that received within the organization? Well, I think they're, they understand at this point. I think everyone around here understands that this has been going on for far too long, Jeff. And it, it did look like, like they were very confident that that 10 vote was going to pass, which was a, a complete misread of the situation. Um, that they, they Quite frankly, they just got outpointed by a better campaign. Um, and I, we can we can dive into the details if you want of that. There was a lot of misinformation coming from the other side, but it worked. That's politics. It was effective. So, mm -hmm. w with Gary making those comments, I think he has to be he has to respond to basically his constituents, the board of governors, a lot of people around the league who are fed up with this situation and want some clarity. So, I think that was an acknowledgement of that. But at the same time, you, you've also seen Gary saying that. He still believes that there are viable options here in Arizona. The Coyotes are not for sale. He's not in, inclined to force a sale away from Alex Morello at this point. So, again, they're, they've been granted some license to go out and try and find another solution. But I do feel like they are under the gun a bit here. I, I don't think this is something that can drag on for a couple of years. I think the goal is to have some concrete plan by the start of the season. Um, but 
you know, how negotiations go on a business deal of this magnitude. Uh, I, I certainly don't think it can extend past the end of next season. It's it just got to be, you always look for, you know, uh, negotiating uh, perspectives here. And, you know, you cut your best deal when you have the ability to walk away. And the Arizona Coyotes have no ability at this point to walk away. Like, it, it's got to be real tough for, for Alex Morello's group here, knowing that, you know, wherever they negotiate, they're no longer negotiating from any type of position of strength because everybody understands what the stakes are here for the Arizona Coyotes uh, and, and how much they need a new rink in order to survive or else they're going to be, you know, they're, they're going to find a different address uh, sooner than later. That, that, that's that got to be one of the major challenges now as the Coyotes go back to the marketplace trying to find a, a place to build a new rink. I would think so, yeah. But, uh, but on the flip side, because they're looking at multiple sites and I, I know that they're in talks, Maybe they can play those off of one another. I don't know to strike a better deal, but you're right. That's that's right. absolutely looming over the entire thing right now. Um, I'm I'm not sure which force is greater at this point, but it, the the one you mentioned is absolutely real. So a, a couple of players that we wonder about here, Craig, and you know, I, I think Clayton Keller is is number one. You know, what does he want? What does the organization want? Uh, can they get on the same page? Does it matter if they're they're on the same page? I mean, like, look, they they made a long term, significant financial uh, commitment to him. He's committed uh, to the Coyotes long term. That contract doesn't expire until twenty seven, twenty eight. Uh, Nick Schmaltz as well. We we wonder about. I personally wonder about Karel Vimelka. Um, that would be someone that, uh, as we look at the goalie market right now around the NHL, uh, that would be someone that I would imagine would curry a lot of interest. Uh, would he be placed uh, as as available um, by Armstrong? Who are, who are some of the players that, that you look at and is, is Clayton Keller at the top of that list? Because, listen, if they put him to market, no shortage of suitors there. I agree with that, um, but I just don't think that there's an appetite to move Clayton Keller. Um, clearly, Clayton Keller's camp wants some clarity on the situation. They were they were all sold, you know, the, the players that are part of the core, Lawson Krauss being one of those guys, Christian Fisher, Nick Schmaltz. They yeah. were all sold this idea that this was a fait accompli. They were going to have an arena in Tempe, and, and that was fine. It, it, it worked for everyone at that point, but when that fell through, you know, Keller's camp certainly wanted some sort of clarity on what was coming next, and, and they're going to try to apply some pressure. But what you mentioned earlier is, is, is a salient point, too. A, a lot of people here have been comparing this to the Jacob Chikrin situation, but the, the difference there is the Coyotes approached Jacob Chikrin about a trade before Jacob Chikrin came to them. They were open to that idea. Mm-hmm. They don't want to trade Clayton Keller, and he has, as you mentioned, he is under contract. So I, I know that they can try it and apply pressure any way they can. And let's not forget that the Bartlett's also represent Logan Gooley. Um, but yeah. he is under contract and there's not much that the, that the uh, agents can do. There's not much that the players can do. Not much even that the PA can do about this situation. Marty Walsh has been commenting on it, but they don't have a lot of power in this situation. This is really more about, you know, like we talked about earlier, what the board of governors, how much patience they have with it. But right now I just sense that, the league is, again, going to be patient with them for the time being to try and find another solution. Um, sorry, that, that was a long-winded uh, answer, but you also mentioned a, you mentioned Corel Vimelko. That's, that's sorry, a player I wonder about as well. Yes. When you talk about Corel Vimelko, I do wonder about that player as well. You're right. I, I could see them getting, if they can get something significant for Vimelka in the goalie market, I, I could see them pursuing that. Nick Schmaltz, I really thought they were going to treat, trade him at last year's deadline. But that's an interesting one because he has such chemistry with Clayton Keller. Clayton likes playing with him. If you move Nick Schmaltz off this roster, not going to make Clayton Keller very happy, and there aren't a lot of options left for him in terms of line mates. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that's um, that, that people find uh, a little bit curious. Um, but I think a lot of us understand because you, you understand the market and, and how, uh, how crucial it could be to, to the National Hockey League. Um, just to get ahead of ourselves here, if the Coyotes end up leaving, uh, I don't think for a second that the NHL wants to abandon Arizona. I, I think if, if the Coyotes yeah. leave, the first thing the NHL thinks about is how do we get back 
into Arizona, and that's not going to happen until there's a, a viable situation with uh, with with an arena. Um, for for those that don't understand why this is a highly valued market, once and for all, can you explain why Arizona is so so highly thought of by the NHL? No, I mean, certain certainly media rights play into that, right? It's I think. Right now, it's the 10th largest media market in the U.S., so that's very significant to the league. It's in a, a region that the NHL, Gary Bevin in particular, has tried to expand to. Vegas obviously had a lot of success in the Southwest. They just won the Cup. So there, there are a number of reasons. It's a growing market. It's a vibrant market. And then when you look at the current ownership, both with Alex Morello and then President CEO Javier Gutierrez, a third of the state is, is Hispanic, and that is a market that the NHL would like to get into as well. So there are a lot of things to like about yep. this market. We've, I don't want to lump everything on Glendale because clearly there have been other factors, but if you go and talk to Richard Berg, the owner who brought the team here, he will tell you that mm-hmm. he, he said all along it would never work out there. And, and Richard Berg believes that all the troubles that have followed the Coyotes are a product of that decision to go west to Glendale in 2003. Uh, I don't disagree. Uh, as someone who's gone there before, first of all, I liked the rink. Like I remember, yeah, it was great. Oh, what year would that have been? Two thousand and six, I think it was. I went and saw a, a, a Coyotes Calgary Flames game there, and it was the first time I had been. I'm like, this is great. Like, there's not a bad seat in the house. The atmosphere is great. It's a nice rink. It's just getting there, and I can imagine, you know, like a seven o'clock start on a Tuesday night, getting down that single lane, like. Good luck. It's a it's a it's a, a real adventure and, and a hassle. There's nothing convenient or easy uh, about it. But as far as an experience, once you're there, I thought it was a great rank, Craig. I really did. Yeah, and it, it, you're right. I I remember a commute where I was literally on the on the highway for two hours just to get to a game, and it was it was utterly brutal. And I know other states deal with that, mm-hmm. but people people in the West behave a little differently. I don't think they will understand that either. But the more the more the more important point about that location is when I, I did a deep dive on where their season ticket base is and particularly their premium season ticket base and it's anywhere from two thirds to three quarters of the base lives on the east side of town. So you now you, you start to understand why they're looking in the area that they're looking. A lot of people think, well you gotta be in the downtown core. Phoenix is not like other cities. It's a brand new city built well after the advent of the automobile. So it's all these pockets, it's different areas. It doesn't really have a core, but it does have an area that you can define as the core of the population base, the wealth base, and the corporate base. Mm-hmm. And all of that is along that 101 corridor on the east side of town. That's why the Coyotes want to build there. That's why the Diamondbacks want to leave downtown and go build a stadium there as well. Uh, Diamondbacks were having a nice season, just uh, as an aside there. I think, uh, sure I think Blue Jays fans are uh, longing for Lourdes Gurriel back, but nonetheless, that's for a, uh, for a different show here. Um, real quick as I wrap up with you if, you, if you can do it in 60 seconds, bless you. Um, but how did Coyotes fans, how did everyone feel about Shane Doan leaving? Uh, it's a gut punch because he's an icon, right? He, he is the face of the Coyotes. Um, but but I think a lot of people understood that he wasn't going to get that opportunity here. He was, they weren't obligated to give him that opportunity based on his experience level. So you wish for the best for Shane Doan because he's an unbelievable human being. Everyone loves him here. Yep. Just wish for the best and maybe maybe someday he could return. You know, the um, as people have said before, like very few people ever have had a bad experience with uh, with, with Shane Doan. Um, to, to be to be honest with you, I, I'm kind of surprised that it took Shane Doan this long to take that next step in his career. You know what I'm you know what I'm getting at, Craig? Like uh-huh. here's you know here's are someone, you really though you know, knowing who he Canada. is? Yeah. No, but see, part of me, like the part of me, says like the loyal Shane Doan is gonna stay married to this market forever, and that's probably why he stayed. But then the other part of me yep. that wonders about the professional Shane Doan says like I'm sure there were plenty of opportunities that were afforded to Shane oh, Doan, and every time he said no. Now Hockey Canada presented opportunities, and he worked with people like Daniel Briere, who's now the GM uh, of the Philadelphia Flyers, in putting together international uh, teams for for Hockey Canada. Uh, over the years, but I, I'm just kind of surprised that that didn't happen sooner. Or rather, maybe the better way to put it is Shane Doan didn't allow himself to be put in that situation sooner. Maybe that's how I how I yeah. see the Adam there. Yeah, and it doesn't surprise me, having known him for so long, that, that you mentioned loyalty. That's who he is. He, he cares so deeply about this market. 
and about this franchise that that's what he was going to do. And that's it almost became an expectation at some point, almost like he couldn't get away from it because that's how everybody defined him. They knew him as that person. So if he yeah. were to walk away, it would, it would make people question what was going on. Um, but again, he wanted this opportunity. He wants to be a general manager in this league, and he wasn't going yeah. to get the opportunity to grow there. And now he gets to go reunited, get reunited with a guy who's been a friend of his for two decades in Brad Tree leaving in Toronto. Oh. What, a, what an incredible opportunity there. It's it's a great one. Craig, we're up against it. Thanks, as always, for stopping by. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Thanks, Jeff. Great talking to you. Craig Morgan from Phoenix Sports uh, talking about the Arizona Coyotes situation. Cassian uh, placed on waivers today and Nemeth placed on waivers today uh, uh, for the purposes of a buyout of both. Uh, hour two is coming up. Lance Lasowski talking Buffalo. Andy Strickland next on the Blues. Keep it here. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Lots to get to over the next 60 minutes. Lance Lasowski is going to stop by from Buffalo News, and uh, we'll talk about the Buffalo Sabres uh, losing a couple of Rochester coaches, uh, Mike Weber, Mike Pekka. Uh, Weber to the St. Louis Blues, more on that in a moment. And also uh, Mike Pekka to the New York Rangers, uh, where he'll be an assistant with Peter LaViolette. LaViolette would have coached him with the New York Islanders and then brought him aboard. Uh, for one season with the Washington Capitals. Uh, in the meantime, uh, he's a good buddy to everybody, and he's got a great podcast, the Cam and Strick Podcast. He's a Blues ringside reporter. He is Bon Vivant, man about town, knower of everything St. Louis Blues. He is Andy Strickland, and he joins me now. Andy, how are you? Uh, Jeffy, about the golf with Cam, by the way. So wish me luck today, Jeff. I tell Cam, uh, A, tell him I said hello, and two, tell him I miss watching him play with the Guelph Storm where he terrorized, he terrorized the entire Ontario Hockey League. And to this day, I'm still a fan of his straight arm call off the officials halfway through the scrap move. No one did it better than, uh, than Cam Jansen. No one. Hey, Jeff, you'll like this because it's funny. Um, I was actually at, Game seven, London versus Guelph. And I believe Cam scored oh, yeah. a, a, a goal in that game seven. And you know why I was there? I was up there doing all my, like, whatever, just, like, you know, randomly. I actually met with David Brandt, the uh, commissioner of the OHL, yep. um, because I was uh, covering the Mike Danton story. And, and listen, you and I talked, I mean, dozens and dozens Every and day. dozens and dozens all of hours time. talking yeah. about Mike. <laughs> and, uh, and I was up there, and I met with the uh, Cicerelli family and Sarnia. And you know what? Listen, and I was yep. a young reporter at the time, or, uh, Jeff, and it was such an eye-opening experience to take in um, the Ontario Hockey League and be able to go to all these different buildings. I mean, I went to the St. Mike's building. Chris Pronger was a minority owner with Mississauga. Mm-hmm. Went to Mississauga for a game. You know, so doing yep. some different things and, and obviously going to see a, a game uh, with the London Knights and they had some good players and Cam, who... I, I knew at the time he was from St. Louis. I mean, to see him score a goal in Game Seven, you don't you don't see that too often. So he reminds me all the time too, man. Yeah. So yeah, I'm glad you brought but that you, up. But you know what that. Well, you know what that was about Cam? Like, he was he was one of the OG St. Louis players to make their way to the OHL. Now it's been a steady stream of St. Louis, uh, St. Louis-born players uh, that make their way to the Ontario League. Now, I, a lot of, I know a lot of them stay in USHL as an option and uh, the national team, etc. But, like, the St. Louis pipeline, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, wasn't Cam one of the first? I mean, he was one of the first that I really noticed coming up from, from St. Louis. Yeah, no, he was 100% the first. Although I always tell him that, you know, Pat LaFontaine is officially the first person from St. Louis to make it to the NHL. Although Pat moved to Michigan when he was six or seven years of age. He actually came back a few years ago, and uh, we did a feature on uh, on Bally Sports during a Blues game. They actually aired it, I think, during a Sabres and an Islanders game as well, uh, going back to the house that he grew up in here in St. Louis. And even in this local rink, where he grew up playing in, which happens to be the same local rink where my son plays right now, Jeff. They've got like a little in-glass case display for uh, for Pat LaFontaine. So he may have been the first, although Pam says he's the first. Um, But there's been a number of kids from St. Louis who have gone on to play, you know, major junior in the OHL. But you're right. 
Most kids probably go the college route, play with that U.S. program if they're good yep. enough, but still they find their way to the USHL. We've got dozens and dozens of kids sprinkled throughout junior hockey in North America, specifically here in the U.S., playing in the top league in the USHL. So how did it happen? Like, I want to get to the Blues right now, but let's let's go historical yeah. a little bit here. So that was one of the yeah, St. Louis yeah. Blues. Uh, were one of the set one of the secondary six franchises. Uh, I mean, the, they were the model of consistency. Uh, I always go out of my way to mention before there were the Broad Street Bullies, there were the St. Louis Blues, and Philadelphia's Broad Street Bullies happened because they were, you know, Ed Snyder, the owner, the late owner of the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, was fed up with the St. Louis Blues. Just to be blunt, beating them up. Every game, like St. Louis was a good team, and they were a tough team, Mm -hmm. and they would pick on the Philadelphia Flyers like crazy. And that's when, you know, Ed Snyder said no more, and all of a sudden it was a steady stream of Dave Schultz and uh, Hound Dog and Seleski, like real tough players coming into the Philadelphia Flyers organization. And that's where that identity began. And that identity began because they wanted to stand up to the St. Louis Blues, who were the biggest bullies on the block. And St. Louis always had one gunslinger, no matter what team it was. Always had a tough guy. Were always skilled. Always made the playoffs. Uh, model of consistency. Had some Hall of Famers as well. The, the, this will be the, the, uh, you know, the franchise almost folded. They missed an entire draft. They were going to go to Saskatoon. We all know all about that drama. My question, I, I guess, is a, a sort of weird one. Why did it take so long for that to pop as a youth hockey market, considering how successful yeah. St. Louis was pretty much out of the gate in 67? And, you know, listen, I think it's a great question. And first off, you look at all the kids that have come out of St. Louis, most of them are tough. Um, and it's not just Cam. But, you know, we had Neil Komodowski before that, who uh, I think he's still the all-time leader in penalty minutes of the U.S. program. Patty Maroon, uh, Brandon Bowling. Um, yeah. You know, you look at the Chuck brothers right now, Trent Frederick, Luke Cunning, all these guys are going to drop the gloves, and they can all handle themselves. And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with just the way you have yeah. to grind it out coming out of St. Louis. But in terms of how St. Louis became, you know, what it is right now in, in, in terms of youth hockey, I think you got to look at the Blues first off, and you got to look at some of the former players who stuck around here in St. Louis and helped develop youth hockey and the program here. And it started with big Neil Komodowski and Rob Ramage and, and Blake Dunlop. Um, you look at John Wensick, who you talk about tough guys now. And I know you, you know your hockey oh history, Jesse, so you know, you know about John Wensick. Um, he's been huge. Oh, yeah. You know, he sponsored uh, the Pee Wee Quebec team here out of St. Louis for, you know, probably close to 20 years. I mean, this guy has been a huge part of it. Yeah. And then when I started coaching here in St. Louis, you know, it was, you know, guys like Al McKinnis, Jeff Brown, uh, Keith Kachuk. And we've had some great coaches. You know, I always, I always want to remind people, it's not just the former NHLers. We've, we've had some unbelievable coaches here in St. Louis that, that didn't play in the NHL. Um, but, you know, we're not what we are today as a youth hockey uh, market, you know, without the names that I just mentioned. But it starts with the Rob Ramages and the Blake Dunlops and Neil Komodowskis, you know, the, the, uh, the Perry Turnbulls, you know, I mean, the John Wentz, all those guys, man. I mean, they all deserve yeah. the proper recognition because, uh, like I said, we're not where we are today without them. And now that I have a son playing at seven years of age and uh, you look at how often they're on the ice, how skilled they are at a young age, how good they are at a young age. It's really unbelievable. And they love all these guys. So, Jeffy, not to go too long-winded here, but, you know, mm-hmm. they know the Matthew Kachucks and the, and the Luke Connors and the Trent Fredericks sure. and the Brady Kachucks and the Pat Maroons. They know all these guys. And so when they all come back um, to St. Louis during the course of the summer, you see them at the rink and they're engaging with the kids, and the kids absolutely love it. What are the facilities like? And and I ask this uh, for a couple of very specific reasons. You know, I look at, you know, what youth hockey's become in St. Louis, and I measure it off against, you know, like the uh, the Penn's Elite program, and the facilities there are insane. Like the the, 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 the the Pittsburgh facilities are gorgeous. Same as Anaheim. Like you look at what the, uh, uh, about what that program's been like and how they've developed players, and their facilities are first class. What's it like in St. Mm-hmm. Louis? Well, first class, and, you know, the Blues chairman, Tom Stillman, uh, and, and the president of hockey, you know, Chris Zimmerman, listen, they had this vision. Obviously, the Blues winning the Stanley Cup um, has taken, you know, St. Louis hockey to the next level. But this, this was in the works even before they won the Cup, and they built a $80 million-plus facility where the Blues practice out of now, which is as good as any facility you're going to find 
in all of North America. They've got three sheets inside, one sheet outside. It's a concert venue outside during the course of the offseason. They have a massive Blues alumni dressing room that will rival any NHL dressing room right now in the NHL. Um, and, and it's absolutely incredible. Then about 10, 15 minutes down the road, you have another new uh, rink with two sheets inside that was privately funded here in St. Louis. And it's an incredible ice rink. In addition to the old school rinks that you have everywhere. You know, when I was a kid growing up here in St. Louis, you were lucky to maybe get on the ice twice a week. Now these kids, if they want to, and they can get on the ice seven days a week, honestly, if they really want to, you can find ice. There's rinks everywhere throughout mm-hmm. St. Louis. And there's people who know what they're doing. I mean, we mentioned the kids that came out of St. Louis. You look at guys like Philip McRae, who's running a hockey school here in St. Louis yeah. year-round, who was a second-round pick of the Blues, played in London, of course, the son of the great Basil McRae. We'll give Basil a shout-out. Jeffy, I love how you're, you're, you're making me give everybody a shout-out here for St. Louis. And I love that. I love that. So, you know, but Philip McRae, awesome guy. You know, you can get on the ice with him and all these other guys that are uh, John Stanbrook's a skating coach now for the St. Louis Blues who taught Chris Weidman and his brother Alex Weidman and all these other guys, the Kachucks and stuff. He was on the ice with Brady Kachuk. I took my son yesterday to skate with John Stanbrook, a skating guru here in St. Louis. He's about to get on the ice. And you know who's on the ice right before my son with John Stanbrook? It's Brady Kachuk. You know, so it's like our kids who are seven years old, he just turned seven two weeks ago, can skate with the same skating coach as Brady Kachuk, man. So we've got it made here from a hockey standpoint here in St. Louis. Does he have an agent yet, your son, Andy? <laughs> I'm going to be the agent, Jeff. I want that 3%. <laughs> <laughs> you're, just like, you're just like Bieksa with his kids. Um, okay, okay, so let's get, let's get to the St. Louis Blues here. And uh, I'll be honest with you. I look at the St. Louis Blues, and we're all thinking about Nashville in the draft next week. And I'm thinking to myself, listen, you know, you know, you know Doug Armstrong. I don't know that he uses all three picks for the St. Louis Blues. I don't know that he's on stage three times in the first round. Yeah. Do you? No, and I don't think you really need to. I mean, if you're an NHL GM and you have three first-round picks, I mean, you better use that flexibility and those options to your advantage. I mean, now you can make the three first-round picks. The Blues did that back in 2007, and they got David Perron and Ian Cole and Lars Eller, three guys that have gone on to have great NHL careers. All three Stanley mm-hmm. Cup winners, by the way. Um, you know, so you can certainly go that direction. But the Blues are, are, are in a different spot now than they were back in 2007. I think they'd like to get the best player available with the 10th pick, and we'll see who that is. They'd like to get a defenseman. They know they, 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 know they need to add to their group of defense. Although, you know, the, the, the likelihood of a player who they get in the first round in a few weeks of them being a part of the team in the next year or two is probably a little bit unlikely. So, again, you still look at the best player available, but they want to restock what they have from a defensive standpoint. And I do think you use one of those first-round picks to either move up, to move down, to make a hockey trade. You include it in a package. Uh, listen, I think Doug Armstrong can be an absolute animal when he wants to, Jeff, and you know that. And he is on the mm-hmm. prowl right now to improve this team and make this team better. I think he's looking to shake things up with the current roster, and I think he will. And if he chooses to move one of those three first-round picks, I don't think anybody will be surprised. Um, I don't think that the, the, the St. Louis Blues have it in them to do, nor do I think they have to, go through any type of you know sophisticated, strip-it-down rebuild. But this is very much a team that's transitioning away from that 2019 team that won the Stanley Cup. Listen, Petrangelo's long gone. Ryan O'Reilly leaves. Uh, you know, and I look at you know the, the money for, for Kapanen, and I look at Varana and I say, okay, well, that's the Ryan O'Reilly money. That's why Ryan O'Reilly's not going to come back to the St. Louis Blues. But they're very much moving off the 2019 team and turning this thing over uh, to the Robert Thomas, Jordan Cairo, et cetera, and that, and that vintage. Um, wh- where is Doug Armstrong's head at with what this next version of the Blues is going to look like? And by that, I mean, who are the sacred cows? Who are sort of, you know, hands off, don't even call me about this guy for Doug Armstrong? Well, I don't think they have one. You know, Robert Thomas may be the closest one on the roster right now to being that guy. Um, but I don't look at them having a sacred cow by any means right now. Um, but I also think that maybe the mindset has changed a little bit from the trade deadline from when they were, um, you know, making trades and moving Ryan O'Reilly and moving Barbashev and making all those moves. 
where maybe they're thinking, hey, this is going to be a retool. Maybe you're looking at the Los Angeles Kings as, as, as a model to, hey, maybe two or three years you can have this team back up and running and be in a contending position. But then you see the Florida Panthers squeak in. And I know they won the President's Trophy the year before, yeah. and they're loaded with talent. And they, they've got more top five picks that they didn't draft you know, on their roster than any other team in the league. Or top six picks, I guess, if you include Matthew Kachuk. So I, I think he's also saying, hey, you know what? You can, you can put this thing together pretty quickly and, uh, and still be competitive and get yourself back to a con- contending status. And, you know, listen, they still have really good players. Uh, they got good players on the back end. They've got a Stanley Cup winning goaltender. You know, Jordan Cairo did not have a good year last year, but he still scored 37. And they're looking for him to mature on the ice, get his game to that next level in terms of the overall game, and still maintain that level of production. Um, you know, Verona came over at the trade deadline and, you know, obviously was a, uh, a good player down the stretch. Casper uh, Kapanen, good player down the stretch. Graydon Shen, still a great leader and a very productive NHL player. Uh, Robert Thomas, the number one center in the National Hockey League. You know, Justin Falk on the back end had a career year last year from a production standpoint. So, you know, and, and Colton Pareko was a guy who, he didn't have a great year last year. I don't think anybody's going to, you know, hide from that. But I think there's also maybe this idea maybe you just let him loose and let him become a skater, stop trying to wait for him to maybe develop into a player that maybe he may not become in terms of uh, from a physicality standpoint. But, when you look at defensemen who can get the puck from your own end to the other end of the ice, very few can do it better. This guy is a skater. Uh, he's not the most dynamic uh, offensive defenseman from a production standpoint, uh, but he can certainly, you know, get you on the attack with numbers, with his ability to uh, to use his feet and get up the ice and skate. And plus, you know, listen, he may not drop the gloves, but, you know, he battles. He'll win battles along the wall. Uh, you know, he can battle in front of that. He can battle in the corner. Um, and like I mentioned, they got they got Jordan Bennington in there, and Joel Hofer's coming up with a big-time prospect. So he'll be the backup goaltender, and I wouldn't be surprised if he steals some games and there's a stretch during the season where he's the better of the two and he carries the ball for a little bit. So, listen, they will add a piece or two, if not more. I think they're going to be looking to maybe make a splash and certainly uh, shake things up, and I think we're all excited to see what that looks like. Let me get to the goaltenders there because you mentioned uh, Bennington a bunch and, and you mentioned Joel Hofer as well. And you know, a lot of us have been waiting for, for Hofer to get that to get that shot. And we're in an era right now uh, in the NHL where, you know, we used to say like, oh, it's ridiculous. You can't play 75 games anymore, though. That's that's gone. Well, you can't really even play games. You can't even play like 60 plus games. Like it seems like the sweet spot of the bat is kind of between 50 to 55 games for your goaltender. If you're going to have any chance at doing any Anything in the playoffs, when we talk about load management, that's about the goaltenders uh, specifically. Um, Joel mm-hmm. Hofer comes in uh, having only played, you know, a, a few games in the NHL. Um, what's the plan here by way of handing out games? Like, we understand that Jordan Bennington is going to get the lion's share of this, and we all understand that. Mm-hmm. But how many games do you think uh, St. Louis is comfortable handing to rookie netminder Joel Hofer, knowing that? If you're going to do anything and have your goaltender ready to do it, uh, the number needs to start with a five, not a six, as far as games played goes. Yeah, yeah. well, Jordan Bennington had a career high last season in games played. I think he may have been first or second overall in the league, right there with uh, Connor Hellebuck. If it wasn't for the suspension, he got late in the season. Uh, He probably would have led the league in games played and starts. So, listen, you're not going to see that this year. And, you know, they don't have Thomas Grice as a backup going into next year either, right? You've got a guy who came up. Uh, and Joel Hofer, he flashed last season. When you look at the way that he played, just look at his numbers and his record yeah. here in the National Hockey League. I mean, this guy can play. They know he can play. He's a bigger goaltender, six foot five, covers the net or fills the net. And uh, I don't think the organization's ready to put a number on any of these guys. I, I truly believe it's going to be, hey, whoever gives us the best chance to win and who's ever playing better on that specific time and that given game is going to get the opportunity to play. Now, this is not a uh, a, a case where you've got a, a guy who's an obvious backup like Thomas Rice last season. You've got a guy who's got future number one ability, and he can play. And you look at Vegas right now with Aiden Hill. I mean, these goaltenders, man, Jeff, you know this. It's, it's the most difficult position to predict in all of sports. All these guys can play at a high level. All these guys are capable of having a great week, two great weeks. How consistent can they be over the long stretch? That remains to be seen. But Joel Hofer is going to play, and he's going to play a lot this coming season. How do you see 
the Central Division, where the St. Louis Blues ply their trade, um, up against the Pacific, where once upon a time, the Central was murderer's row. But mm-hmm. you know, Chicago's taken a big step back. They'll pick up Connor Bedard, and we'll see how they compliment him. But, you know, the Arizona story uh, is well told. Nashville has taken a step back. We'll see what happens with the Winnipeg Jets. We know that Sheffield Dayoff... You know, is you know looking to move a goaltender and a couple of uh, uh, a couple of centers, high end centers. So we'll see what happens with the Winnipeg Jets. How do you look at the Central versus the Pacific, where the Cup exists now with the Vegas Golden Knights? Edmonton is still excellent. Los Angeles is really good. Seattle's not going anywhere. Uh, Calgary should be a, a real good team this year again, even though last year was a little bit of a, a blip on the radar. How do you measure the Central against the Pacific now? Well, you know, from a blue standpoint, they actually played well against the Pacific last year. Um, better against the Pacific than they than they did even, you know, against some of the teams inside their own division and against teams in the Eastern Conference. Listen, it goes in waves. You know, a year or two ago, the Central was the most dominating team in our division in the West. Last year, it was the Pacific. Yep. Listen, I expect the Pacific to be good once again this coming year. I mean, LA's not going anywhere. You just mentioned all these other teams. I mean, we're waiting for for Edmonton to take what they do in the regular season and, you know, show that ability in the postseason. Vegas is the reigning Stanley Cup champion. So, I mean, they're obviously going to be considered the better of the two divisions as you head into um, next season. And Seattle, obviously, had a great showing last year. I love the Seattle team. We just had Ron Francis on the Canister podcast. He was awesome. I love the way they play. They kind of remind me of the Blues back in 2019 where they don't rely on one superstar to get it done. They just play like a team. They're a lot yeah. of fun to watch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Blues and, and the rest of the teams in the Central, they're going to have their hands full with the teams in the Western Division. There's no or Pacific Division. There's no question. All right. Uh, on that, I'll let you go. I know you got to golf with uh, with Cam, so you get right at it. Uh, please, again, send him my best. And listen, dude, always great hearing your voice. Great catching up again. You be well. Happy golfing and happy agent shopping uh, for your son, your very talented <laughs> hockey son. <laughs> I appreciate that, Jeff. Always great to be with you. You have a great. Uh, we got high, you got Canada Day coming up, don't you? On, on July first, right? Uh, July, July 1st, 1st is uh, July 1st, 4th of July here in St. Yeah, so so enjoy the uh, all the festivities that comes with that, and uh, have a great summer. We'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, pal. The great Andy Strickland uh, from the Cam and Strick podcast, Blues Ringside Reporter. And, uh, man, that guy is on the scene. Uh, and no St. Louis Blues hockey, uh, the great Andy Strickland. And it is it is true. Like, the the, the first time that I got to meet Andy and, and talk to him consistently um, was when the Mike Danton stuff was happening with uh, his former agent, David Frost, uh, which was, and, you know, uh, Andy mentioned it, one of the most bizarre things I've ever covered, ever been part of. I don't know that I've ever been stunned more at various turns and stories. Um, this is when I was doing the old Leafs Lunch Show with Bill Waters, and there would be people who would uh, call us uh, disguised as other people, um, in a number of situations, um, middle of the night threats uh, that were being made. Uh, we get consistent phone calls from the OPP. Uh, that one was a bizarre one that drew in uh, not just the primaries involved, who were Mike Danton and Dave Frost, but also you know peripheral people from not just the the NHL. Um, with the St. Louis Blues organization, uh, but also people in and around the uh, the Ontario Hockey League um, from various teams where Dave Frost's players were uh, to Quinty um, when the team played junior. Like that was the the whole saga. I remember just coming away from the whole thing trying to figure out, okay, who lied to me the most? And I think we all came away wondering, okay, so at which points here, like, understand that this is a very sensitive situation and an NHL player tried to have his agent murdered. Uh, so there is going to be some deceit and there's going to be some people that try to make sure that their side gets presented in the best possible lights. But there was, there were plenty of people who, um, presented themselves as other than they actually were. 
there are a lot of people that I'm really happy to see come out the other end who I'm sure were deceived their entire young lives. And I think of Toronto Maple Leafs head coach Sheldon Keefe uh, specifically, who's completely turned his life around. Um, the Macaulay family was pulled into this one uh, as well. And I, I think a lot of us always wondered if, uh, if the late John Macaulay was still alive, how that would have affected that situation. Uh, anyhow, but that's how I got to meet uh, Andy Strickland. And we've always just stayed in touch. And Andy's been a great guy. And it's great to see how excited he is to coach youth hockey um, in St. Louis. But as he mentioned, that's when he was, you know, doing all of his background on uh, on the OHL and getting to know all the people uh, around the league. That was during the, uh, the Dave Frost, uh, Mike Danton situation as we call it. Um, okay, uh, Matt Marchese aboard here for a couple of moments as we're going to give away to the Buffalo Sabres talk and, and Lance Lasowski coming up at the bottom of the hour. Um, were, you too, uh, were you too young for that entire saga here, Matty? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bit of inside knowledge here. I actually went to David Frost's camp that he ran out of Iceland Arena in Mississauga, um, and Sheldon Keith was an instructor eh? there. Yeah. Ryan Barnes, uh, Sean Cation. Yeah. Uh, it was Mike Sean Jefferson. Daryl, 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 Daryl Tivron. Would he have been there? Lance uh, Galbraith not, might've been there as well. I, I'm not sure if Lance was there. Um, Sheldon's brother, Adam was there as well as an instructor. Yep. Um, I'll never forget Sheldon Keith uh, introducing a drill and he goes in and you know, the one handed shot where you could just flick it kind of off your knee and he just goes in, he's like, I don't know, 17 years old and just, yeah. And he just goes bar down as hard as he could with his thing. I'm like, wow, (laughs) that is really cool. As a very impressionable, like whatever I was nine year year old. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was something else, but yeah, I, I do remember all of that. That was, um, uh, very eye-opening, uh, to say the least. Just on a uh, on, on a positive side, mentioning Sheldon Keefe, because I watched him play in junior hockey, and he played on some really talented teams, and he was always the best player. There were, like, history's kind of forgotten this because the story took over just how good Sheldon Keefe was as a hockey player. I know he'll always downplay it to this to this point. Like, oh, nah, I wasn't really that good. Sheldon Keefe was an excellent, excellent hockey player. Like, there are plenty of times where I just completely saw Sheldon Keefe take over games. Well, you know what I'm talking about, Maddie. You would have watched him play, and mm-hmm. you went to, uh, to, to Frost Camp, and you saw him. Like, Sheldon Keefe was an out. Like, his entire career just got sidetracked because of the association with, with Dave Frost. Like, he was one guy that you know those guys you look at in junior and say, there's no way that this guy's not going to have, like, a 12-year career in the NHL? Sheldon Keefe was one of those guys. Yeah, a couple Absolutely couple things was that talented. couple of things on that. Um, one, um, firstly, Sheldon off the ice, even at that time as a younger as a younger guy, was one of the nicest people. So my dad, my dad ran the concessions, and he actually had the bar at Iceland Arena. Also, did the concessions oh, yeah. at the Hershey Center. So when Sheldon was playing for St. Mike's, um, they they mm. were playing Mississauga, and we we kind of. We knew each other through the camp, but I always kind of flocked to Sheldon. Like that was that was my guy. That was my instructor that I always flocked to. And I was there for two or three years that yeah. I that I did that camp. He had he got me a, a wooden mini stick. I still have it to this day. Signed it, sent it up to the box that we were staying in because my dad had a box there. To Matt, you know your friend Sheldon Keith, whatever. I still have that to this day. So I I always think fondly <laughs> of Sheldon. Um, but, um, you know, as the, as a player, he was a second round pick and he's one of those guys. And you talk about history, not remembering him. Um, you wonder what Sheldon Keefe would have been like in today's game because he's a smaller guy. He was stocky, Mm -hmm. but he was also tough. Like we forget also how, how tough Sheldon Keefe was as well. So he would have been one of those guys. I'd be really interested to see how his career would have turned out had he played in a different era too. Yeah, Sheldon was uh, Sheldon was tough, certainly skilled, uh, and you mentioned his brother Adam as well. Adam was tough. Adam was oh, yeah. raw bone tough and kind of had a little snap element about him as well. 
which was frightening uh, at any age. Um, anyhow, uh, that's how we got sidetracked there, um, talking to Andy Strickland from the Cam and Strick podcast. What do you think St. Louis does in this offseason? Like, I-, I can't see them really taking much of a step back. I think they want to make some room for the, the, the Tyler Tuckers and uh, the Scott Pruneviches on the blue line, so I wouldn't be surprised with any moves they make on the back end here. Um, I do not think for a second, and again, we'll see next week in Nashville, if St. Louis, I, I can't see St. Louis getting up there to make three first-round draft choices. That just doesn't seem like it's in the cards. If you can trade that into, or turn that into a package for players, I see Doug, Arm- Doug Armstrong going that direction. Uh, what do you think of St. Louis this offseason? I, I said the same thing. There's no way that Doug Armstrong is making three first-round picks because the other thing is, is and you kind of alluded to it, St. Louis isn't your typical like team picking tenth overall and has two extra draft picks. Like they, they weren't they they just had such a weird year last year, and they're not far removed from being a team that everybody goes, "Well, hold on, the St. Louis Blues are a contender." I do wonder about opening up some cap space, and you know, when you look at their defense, they a lot of them have no trade clauses, and and I do wonder about moving one of them. Like it, they have uh, for from cap friendly, they have seven and a half million dollars in projected cap space. I wonder about them mm-hmm. trying to move one of Tory Krug or Colton Pareko. Uh, I don't disagree. Uh, I, I, th- I think we all do uh, do wonder about that. Um, hit a break. Uh, we'll get on to speaking about moving defensemen and making room for defensemen. Uh, it's tough to figure that the Buffalo Sabres aren't in the market for a defenseman. I would imagine they would be in on just about every conversation uh, about defensemen in the NHL right now. Lance Lasowski knows uh, from the Buffalo News. Uh, he'll join me here in a couple of moments. they got to find some AHL coaches uh, with Weber gone and with Pekka gone. Uh, and they're in the market for um, uh, for blue liners, and I I I I, I want to say that the Buffalo Sabers will be in the goalie market to try to find a veteran. But the more that I have conversations with people, I wonder if they're just comfortable with Levi and Lukanen, and that's their pair, as young as that might be. Uh, one of the questions, or a few of the questions, we have for Lance Lasowski from the Buffalo News, who joins me next. Sabres talk here in a couple of moments. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Back in a moment. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. You know, there was a while uh, this season where it seemed like every day we were doing Sabres talk. And for good reason. They were one of the hottest teams in the league. Uh, Tage Thompson was uh, firing his way up the uh, the scoring list and contributions from some of the high first-round draft picks. The defense was on fire. Devin Levi, towards the end of the season, became a huge story. And for good reason. Uh, and even though the Buffalo Sabres didn't make it to the postseason, expectations and optimism uh, is at a dare I say, all-time high in recent memory around the Buffalo Sabres? Lance Lasowski knows. Let's ask him from the Buffalo News. Lance, how are you today? Is it safe to say that expectations for next season and optimism is high around the Buffalo Sabres organization? Absolutely, at least for the last decade, right? I think that fans have finally let their guard down a little bit after what they saw this year because, hey, they're, they're afraid to get hurt again. They've been hurt quite a bit in Buffalo the last decade or so. But given <laughs> given everything they have on the NHL roster, the cap yeah. space for the next few seasons to be projected out, the prospect pipeline, there's a lot to be excited about. Uh, there is. And, you know, the, the, the one thing, and I'll, I'll start with this one because it's, you know, kind of one of the big elephants in the room here. The, you know, the one thing that it sounds as if, feels as if the Buffalo Sabres are in the market for, and I, I believe they're in on probably every every defenseman that you can uh, have a conversation about, whether it's uh, Matt Dumba or Noah Hannafin. I mean, they're in the market for defensemen right now. Like, we've talked, Lance, a couple of times, you and I, about, you know, riding Dalene hot, Samuelson hot, power hot, and you don't want to burn these guys out by the Christmas break. So safe to say that uh, Kevin Adams' job number one is uh, is look for blue liners here. Absolutely. Not only do you want to build your depth, I mean, look at the way Vegas was built in the playoffs. That's just one example over recent years. But 
They need to have more stability. Late in the regular season, Don Granado could only trust two of his deep pairs and must win games. You don't want to be in that spot right now. So the internal debate the Sabres are having are, do they feel comfortable adding a guy with only one year left on his deal, whether it be Noah Hannafin or Brett Pesci, two guys who are very high on their list, or are they trying to get someone with term here? Because there's not a lot, of, a whole lot of options in the trade market with a young defense and with term. And if somebody like that becomes available, the prices are going to be pretty high. And although mm-hmm. the Sabres are on the cusp, they feel like their their window is opening here. They still want to protect their futures. They don't want to give up too much to add this defenseman. But they also feel that in the free agent market, they might be able to find some real value because they could pitch to a player like Matt Dumba. Look, look at all the career years that our guys had last season. Come play in this system. Come be a D partner with Rasmus Dahlien or Owen Power. And it's a pretty strong recruiting tool. But you're absolutely right. They've cast a wide net to keep their options open, whether it be yeah. Pesci might sign an extension in Carolina or something else might come up. You see, Pesci is an interesting one because I look at Brett Pesci and I say, okay, so what could, what would it cost to get Brett Pesci? Uh, I was thinking about this with a couple of different teams, and the, the the one comparable trade that is not identical but sort of similar in spirit is the Orloff deal with the Boston Bruins. So I would look at that, and that was just a strict rental. We're talking about Pesci here for a full season, so it would have to be, I don't know, two first-round picks to get Brett Pesci. Does that feel right to you based on what the, the return was for, for Orloff as a rental for the Boston Bruins? Absolutely. I feel that Kevin, I mean, if I'm Kevin Adams, I'm trying to convince the Carolina Hurricanes to maybe lower that asking price by agreeing to send them somebody like Victor Olsen. The Hurricanes need a goal scorer, somebody to help on their power play. You have other prospects you might yeah. be able to put in that trade to supplement rather than sending the first because Adams isn't in that sort of awkward situation where he feels like he can be aggressive and make that big move, but at the same time, he wants to protect himself because. You can look at your pipeline and think, oh, we've got a lot of great guys here who are going to be ready in a, in a few seasons. You never know what can happen with an injury or, or, you know, a guy's development could just go completely sideways for a factor that's completely out of your control. Um, let, let me get to the goaltending here. And before we get to the NHL goaltending, although this relates to the NHL goaltending, um, the Rochester Americans had a really nice playoff run. In the American Hockey League, Rochester had a really, really nice run here. And I think a lot of us looked at it and said, because they didn't have him properly made available, lost development opportunity for Ukapeka Lukanen. Agree, disagree? I agree with you. I do not understand why they made that decision. I think they wanted Ukapeka Lukanen to stay focused on his development in Buffalo. They didn't want him thinking about Rochester when he was starting games for the Sabres late in the regular season during that playoff push. But in the end, I think it was a missed opportunity. Although, you know, Malcolm Subban did great, but this is all about development when you're an organization in the, in the situation they're in. Yeah, that was a, that, that was a, a, a real head scratcher. Now the, the other one, uh, that we wonder about is how is the goaltending going to play itself out next season? Um, Devin Levi came in at the end and looked real good. Uh, you mentioned Uka Pekalukanen and how they, they, they see him as an NHL guy, and that's where they want to keep the focus. And then there's one more year of Eric Comrie as well. Now, the Connor Hellebuck rumors are out there, attached to a lot of teams, not just the Buffalo Sabres. But when I look at Buffalo... I say to myself, if they go out and make the play for, for Connor Hellebuck, much like even just making the play for Brett Pesci, if it costs them futures, does that not fly in the face of everything that Kevin Adams has talked about, about building this Buffalo Sabres team? This is going to be the draft and develop and complement maybe with free agents, not the spend draft capital, first rounders, prospects, all of it to bring in established players. Absolutely. I think if Connor Hellebuck had a contract like Thatcher Demko's, three years, $5 million per, that really fits in yeah. with their salary cap and their plan, they'd absolutely aggressively pursue something like that. Well, Hellebuck, though, they don't want to give up that much to get a rental, It's it, especially when they believe so highly in somebody like Devin Levi. So, yes, yeah, so I think, of course, Kevin Adams, again, going to cast a wide net, make a lot of phone calls, check in to see how much it's going to cost to potentially upgrade that that tandem, that partner for Devin Levi. In the end, though, Jeff, I look at you talk about sending draft picks and prospects, and I look at free agency, and 
there's just not a whole lot out there. We think the Varlamov's going to go back to the Islanders. Yeah. Anderson to Carolina. So in the end, why not just bet on the on the two younger kids? And I think that one thing they really they really like about Lukanen in the situation is they think he's going to benefit greatly from having internal competition with Devin Levi. Those two guys competing every day in practice. Because mm-hmm. you look at last season. Lucanen had nobody to compete with. Comrie was injured in and out of the lineup, and, and Craig Anderson. It's just you're not competing against a guy like that at his stage of his career. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, th- I think the Buffalo Sabers may have been the only team last season that offered Eric Comrie a two-year deal. I think there are a lot of one-year deals, and Buffalo. I think I could be wrong on this. Was the only team that offered. The two-year deal, and now here we are, Levi, Lukanen, and Comrie. How do you see this playing itself out? You're absolutely right. That was the separator. That's what that's what ensured that they were going to get the goalie. That's the guy that they targeted for a number of reasons. If it stays status quo, Jeff, I think they're going to try to sneak him through waivers to get him to Rochester. If he doesn't make the team, I think they're going to have a true competition in camp, but they feel that Comrie could be the perfect guy to be the number three because, you know, you see throughout the year they've experienced it here with injuries. You need a third goaltender. It's just, it's going to, you're putting the, the player in a tough spot. He was put in a tough spot last year. So I am very curious to see what those conversations yeah. are like. To maybe prepare him for the reality, what he might face uh, once training camp comes here. Uh, you surprised you got Ryan Johnson's deal done? I do. Yeah. Well, I think they re- it really started to pick up momentum this season once they were able to build a relationship with the kid. Because of COVID, because of the change of regimes, it took time. You know, Ryan Johnson wanted to yeah. see what this group was all about. You know, coming to development camp over the summer, developing a relationship with his development coach, um, Nathan Pache, went a long way. And I think they, they painted a nice picture for him on how he would fit in on the NHL roster, what they're doing in Rochester. They feel really good about it. I know we talked about it on here. They would have felt okay taking the comp pick, but Considering what their pipeline is, getting a defenseman with that pedigree, that potential, they're, they're really happy about where that stands. Um, of the Rochester American players, like listen, like Rochester had a really nice season, and there are some players that really popped in, in Rochester. Um, I know there's always a sensitivity about bringing in too many young new faces, especially a team like the Buffalo Sabres, who are, as you know, Lance, like they're right there to make the playoffs next season and start what hopefully for the Buffalo Sabres is a long string of playoff appearances. But having said that, I mean, you know all these guys. Uh, how many and who are they can you see appearing on the Sabres roster next year? Yuri Kulik is going to be the guy who I believe breaks in from day one out of training camp as a replacement for Victor Olsen, who the Sabres are, are going to move this summer. There's a ton of interest in Olsen. They're not going to have an issue moving off that contract to open a roster spot for him. As for the rest of the Rochester players, I think you'll have Isak Rosean. Linus Weisbach and Lukas Rusek as depth pieces, right? They're, I see them starting the year in Rochester, but they're going to be that, that core group of call-ups. If injury arises, if underperformance hits, and another key factor here is, is the Matt Savoy factor. Are they going to use this, the Shane Wright plan, for a lack of a better way of putting it, with Matt Savoy next season mm-hmm. by starting him in the NHL, getting that conditioning assignment, then returning him to junior? And if they do that, they need to have him on the roster at the start, which would knock Rusek and Weisbach and, and Roseanne down to the American League. But they have to feel great because they've got a really good group of, of prospects going back to Rochester next season for that coaching staff to work with. Uh, the uh, Elliot and I did a podcast with uh, with Chuck Fletcher yesterday. That's going to come out tomorrow. And one of the things we talked about were, you know, things that were offered to you during that at the draft. And this is when he was uh, the manager of the Minnesota Wild. Uh, and he said, you know, we got, uh, I can't remember which year it, it was, but it was the year that Alex Tuck was, was available and Minnesota was going to draft him. And before Minnesota went up, Tim Murray called the table and offered three second round picks. Uh, Buffalo has always wanted Alex Tuck, and that goes back to the Tim Murray days. Um, and Alex Tuck, we've talked about this before, has just become such a valuable part and valuable piece of the Buffalo Sabres organization. Now, I know Kyle Poso is back. Uh, he wears the C. I know that was important for the organization to bring Poso back, but how much is Alex Tuck, without wearing the C, the leader of this Buffalo Sabres squad? He is the heartbeat of the team. He is. He's meant everything to that organization. I think he gave them 
a respect, a legitimacy, for lack of a better way of putting it, during that rebuild, during that transition that they wouldn't have had otherwise. He could speak to the, the, the players in that room about what it looked like around here when it was the height of the Sabres, President's Trophy, Eastern Conference Finals. And by the, I mean, he had, he was an excellent player too. It's not like you're bringing in a prospect. He was a guy, yeah. a guy who brought a skill set they didn't have and a lot of teams covet. And uh, he might be one of the more underpaid players in the league now. You look at that contract and the, what he brings to the ice every night. Yeah, he is. He's not wearing the seat because it, it belongs to Kyle Ocposo, but you may as well just. He basically has one, right? I think everybody sees him as that type of leader on and off the ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rasmus Dahlin, just got a couple of minutes left with you. What is this next deal going to look like? Like he's he's one year out. Uh, he makes six million dollars. We all know how much of a poppin' season this year was for Rasmus Dahlin. What does the decimal point look like for uh, for the the Swedish first overall pick, Rasmus Dahlin? You look at Adam Fox, Kale McCarr, their contracts, plus with the expected rise of the salary cap, it's going to be eight times. Yeah. 10, 10 plus around that neighborhood. You know, two sides are talking. There's excitement on both ends that it's going to get done. I expect it to come in right around there, which, hey, defensemen with that with that production, you know, that potential, yeah. it makes all the sense in the world. This is why they cleared the deck to make sure they had the space to sign a player like him and Owen Power. Um, what's most curious about you? We'll end on this one. What's most interesting? What's most curious about the Buffalo Sabres to you? I mean, you're there, you're right in the middle of it, whether it's, uh, the Buffalo Sabres, the Rochester Americans and the, and the pipeline, uh, coming up from Rochester. What interests you the most about this Sabres team? They have so much skill, right? Not only in Buffalo, but in Rochester, they've drafted, they've prioritized skill, competitiveness, and intelligence in drafting the last three years and their player acquisitions, Krebs, Levi, I can keep going. It's how do you transition from that potential, that skill, that speed into becoming that playoff team that you want to be, right? There's guys who get you get you there. There's guys who get you through. How do they transition and tweak the margins of their roster to become harder to play against? The process started last year with Jordan Greenway and Riley Stillman at the deadline, but I want to see how this team takes that next step and becomes, you know, better defensively, more more responsible, and becomes, you know, that more consistent, high-level team that's going to compete and emerge in a very competitive division that's probably only going to keep getting better with all the potential of Detroit, Ottawa, and you can just keep going down the list. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I lied. I do have one more Jack Eichel and, and this question, uh, Eichel wins the Stanley cup could have probably won the Conn Smythe trophy as well. Um, how was that received in the marketplace? And, you know, considering everybody saw Matthew Kachuk hit him, uh, have the Buffalo Sabres changed their stance on artificial disc replacements? They will never change that stance, at least not publicly, because, <laughs> right? And it was interesting to read Emily Kaplan's <laughs> report that, that so many other teams around the league had the same opinion of the Sabres. Um, you know, good for Jack Huckle for sta- standing up for himself. I think the narrative around this cup would be so different if the Sabres didn't do as well as they did in the trade, right? Like when O'Reilly wins the cup and I the Conn Smythe, they're waiting for Tage Thompson. Patrick Berglund, Vladimir Svoboda hadn't pr- done anything, you know, in Buffalo really now. The fans can see Alex talk. They can see Peyton Krebs. They know that they got Noah Osland out of that that trade, you know, first-round pick in last year's draft. And it helped them get Jordan Greenway. So it it helps ease this thing. I think a lot of people are considering it a win-win, although, you know, you always have the naysayers who say, well, I said they shouldn't have traded him. But, you know, I think that it was an extremely difficult trade, and kudos to Kevin Adams for doing as well as um, he was able to, you know, through patience and – and it all worked out, I guess, um, at least for now, right? So far, so good. Uh, listen, good things on the horizon again for the uh, the Buffalo Sabres. Lance, it's always a pleasure. It's always a delight. Man, you got your uh, you, you, you got the beat down there in Buffalo. Thanks, as always, for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Jeff. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. There's the uh, Lance Lasowski, the great Lance Lasowski from the Buffalo News, uh, covering the Buffalo Sabres, and an interesting time there. Like, they are definitely in the market for just about any defenseman that is available right now. Um, they're at least talking. They're at least investigating. The Buffalo Sabres will come away from this free agent period, either by signing or by trade, with at least one more 
defenseman. Um, and this is a team that I, again, I really do wonder about two young netminders. Am I outlandish in saying I'm concerned about two young netminders uh, in Devin Levi and in uh, Uka Pekalukkanen, who in their own right have looked real good. Um, but there's one thing to look good, you know, getting called up from Rochester and going on a little bit of a run or coming in from Northeastern and going on a run. And there's another when you're handed the ball at the beginning of the season and are told it's playoff time now for the Buffalo Sabres. So we'll see uh, which way the Sabres go. Uh, that will be one of the more curious stories to follow here in the offseason. Thanks to Lance Lasowski from the Buffalo News for stopping by. Um, that wraps up, wraps up another edition here of the program. Um, thanks for joining me as always. Uh, we are back tomorrow. We will continue the show right through till it's the first week of July. I think it's the 3rd and the 4th will be the uh, the final shows here. Uh, thanks to Lance Lasowski from the Buffalo News. Thanks to Andy Strickland uh, from the Cam and Strick podcast. Blues ringside reporter filling us in on everything St. Louis. Doug Armstrong's not making three picks in the first round. Come on. Craig Morgan from Phoenix Sports on the future of the Arizona Coyotes, on the future of hockey in Arizona to begin with. Uh, and Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night in Canada and 32 Thoughts. Thanks to Matt Marchese, Lance Kennedy, Jen Rolnick, the Real Brain Trust of this program. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. 22 hours. We're back to do it all again. Tomorrow, by the way, we're talking Hall of Fame.